don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 17. And today we are finally going to do it. We're talking about 2009's Avatar, directed by James Cameron. A movie that was something like two decades in the making. Um, there's the stories about him writing the super long treatment for it back in like the 90s. And yeah, it didn't it come to Russia. I guess I think I just glanced at the Wikipedia page and it said it was after the treatment was written in uh, like 94, uh, it was supposed to come out sort of in quick succession after Titanic. So 99 was the expected release date. And, and then he just said the technology's not ready. And then waited ten years, and you know, developed all these languages and things like that. That's such a power move. Uh, y'all ain't ready. Y'all ain't ready for what I'm packing. The, the, this state of technology is not ready for the story I'm going to tell. Which is kind of makes makes you think back to like Kubrick uh, using, you know, and, and that's why there are all the conspiracy theories about Kubrick faking the moon landing because he had all this like space age camera technology but even a film like Barry Lyndon because of the lighting stuff right. like that um, so yeah the, and you can definitely tell this movie is is a at the time was and I guess would still be a, a technical achievement because it, it definitely is and I and I, I watched it in uh, like on a big nice TV on Blu-ray you know and it's like <laughs> He did. <laughs> it does what it says on the case. Yeah, if that 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 train coming out of the movie theater screen at you is mesmerizing. And I remember seeing this when it was originally released in a movie theater in 3D because I wanted the whole experience that mm-hmm. everyone was talking about, and it was it was cool. Like I still think 3D is kind of lame. It, it it's it maybe is the film that has used 3D to its greatest potential, but even then it wasn't that. This is such a, maybe a hipster type of answer, but I'll say I saw Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams in 3D, and it was really freaking cool. That would probably, I think that would be a little bit more interesting maybe than Avatar, but it won't have that badass battle scene at the end. They could just stick it in there somewhere. It sounds like maybe something Werner Herzog might do, but uh, yeah, I... I'm gonna I'm gonna eat a little crow I think in this uh, episode because I, I mean the things we've been it's weird how many times we've talked about Avatar just sort of tangential to other movies uh, in this podcast but I, I mean I guess that the main thing we've said is that it's hypocritical and of course that stands big time and, and the question becomes is the substance of the movie in any way powerful enough to kind of negate the hypocrisy, the blatant hypocrisy? And I think the answer to that question is no, um, because I'm not sure how uh, serious this movie is in its uh, intentions, you know, in the clear sort of issues that are relevant to, to the real world. I just, I'm not sure... I'm not sure James Cameron has any real subversive intent, uh, and that's not a very uh, controversial statement to make. I know. 
<laughs> no, no, I think that stands because uh, we were talking beforehand and I found a short article that Zizek wrote about this uh, back before the Oscar ceremony where it was nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director. Um, and, you know, a, a it, lot did, of it didn't win. No, no. I, I, it probably won Best Technical stuff, yeah, for sure. like editing and all that crap, but uh, visual effects, all that. Um, but he was basically saying what you just said that it's not. It seems like it's uh, like oppositional to all these ideas, but is it really when you get below the surface? And he he brings up Titanic, which is the other big Cameron extravaganza, um, and saying that you know people view Titanic as having all this commentary on on class conflict, which it does, but at the same time it still has that old sort of trope of uh, the rich person going slumming in order to fill alive, that, that sort of thing. They, they siphon the supposed vitality of the underclass. Yes, yeah, so Rose descends to the underworld that is, uh, you know, the below the ship's deck or whatever, and it's all these immigrants and peasants of all shapes and sizes and only through this uh, authentic experience can she go on to live her still privileged life. And, and so, and it's not that she comes to view the poor as, you know, she's going to commit her life to serving the poor or anything like that. It's she siphons their vitality to um, simply to augment her own life, you know. Yeah, uh, and he even says in that article that the the real disaster would have been their life in New York, which is <laughs> interesting to think about. And he he says you know they would have grown tired of each other and the the relationship would have fallen apart and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's kind of interesting to think about because with Avatar we have at the end what is uh, what amounts to a happy ending pretty much, and now they're making or are supposed to be making at least two sequels. So we'll see how those play out, how the story kind of expands. How, do you know how old James Cameron is? I don't, but I would I would assume he's probably in his late 60s, early 70s. Because something I had not noticed the first time I watched this movie and noticed this morning as I rewatched it is a sort of disdain for the human body. <laughs> and and it, it made me think this is sort of a very elaborate uh, sort of uh, you know manifestation of James Cameron sort of wrestling with his failing body in his old age, <laughs> you know. Well, I just I just googled it and he is sixty four, so a little bit younger than I thought he would. Yeah, wow. Um, so he he's got a lot done. And I was gonna say, well, he must have been he was kicking ass in like his thirties then because I mean Terminator Two was like what, like ninety two or something. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, he's he's not quite as old as we thought. Still, you know, sixty four is not. My my super favorite young. James Cameron movie by far is The Abyss. The Abyss. Like without irony, I uh, that scene where Ed Harris is like trying to revive his, uh, I guess it's his ex wife in the story, just like pounding on her chest. That is a badass scene. Yeah, and he's we know that he's. Got his obsession with the ocean and the, the ocean floor and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, 
goes in a different direction into space. And the whole thing about the body, I think, is, is interesting because we have Jake Sully, just Sam Worthington's character. Uh, it was interesting to think about. What a random casting. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think about like Sam Worthington because he hasn't really done uh, any other like huge things. Like, he's been working, I guess. But He was in that movie, The Shack, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it's weird. You know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about? Yeah, well, I saw it on Wikipedia. is the only reason I had heard of it. Uh, yeah, I guess it's safe to assume he's been filming the Avatar sequels since then. Uh, well, I, I think they just started filming them fairly recently. Oh, really? I figured those were like written by whatever that Microsoft computer was. They just like, you know, wrote the screenplay with an algorithm or something. <laughs> as soon as this movie made X number of dollars, they're like programmed a screenplay and it'll be shot out in due time. <laughs> so they could start filming in a week. Email, email to everyone's phone. Uh <laughs> But yeah, so you know, he plays Jake Soley, who is this disabled uh, former Marine in a wheelchair. Um, and a lot of the film is him sort of having a kind of almost disgust for his, his human body, mm-hmm. um, which I think later comes to include a lot of disgust with humanity in general. Uh, but at least at the beginning, he, he seems sort of... Uh, like the first time, a big scene that I remembered and then was reminded of when I watched it was the scene when he first sort of links with the, the Avatar body and he just takes off running and he's, it's the thing where he's like so overjoyed that he just takes off and like runs and jumps and does all this right. stuff. Right, right. Um, so he's very much, um, you know, into the Avatar program at first because it gives him that gives him his legs back, basically. And that's even... The uh, the evil general that we'll probably talk a lot about. That's his promise he makes to him that uh, you know if you help me out and spy and, and give me all this information, then when you get back to Earth, I'll make sure you get your legs back. Which just raises a ton of questions about the healthcare system at Earth on Earth. Oh yeah, it's like oh, so this is possible to do, but a sort of bargaining tool for the military. <laughs> like, what yeah. the fuck is going on? And even. The Avatar program in the movie itself is kind of fascinating from a sort of scientific science fiction standpoint. Because at the beginning, and I have to say, like, the, the way that they made Earth look, it's very kind of Blade Runner-esque in the way that it, the first, like, 15 or so minutes of the movie when you're on Earth. Um, I can't even remember what it looks like. It, it just looks like Blade Runner, basically. Like, hmm. all the screens and the big ads that move and all that stuff. Um which may, may be kind of an homage to that, or it might have just been, like, generic future Earth-looking thing. Right. But he, you know, he gets back to his apartment, and he's, like, getting into his bed, and he has this giant, like, wall screen thing, TV on. And they're talking about how they've genetically engineered tigers back from extinction. Something like that. Um, and, and somehow I just miss all of this. <laughs> I was interested in that because I, 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 did, I remembered that it started on Earth, but I didn't remember anything about it. So I was trying to pay attention to that, the beginning part. Um, and so the Avatar program itself is this like massive achievement of genetic engineering and all this. Um, and that's why they, that's sort of the whole onus for the plot happening is that the government or this company, I guess, has spent so much money making this body that, like, if he doesn't go to pilot it, then it's a waste of money. Yeah. Um, which is kind of kind of interesting that it's all sort of driven by this massive uh, sort of mining company. 
Yeah, I didn't think we'd be talking. I didn't, you know, if I'd have thought about it a little bit, I would have seen we would have been talking about extractive, uh, extractive capitalism for three weeks running yeah. now. Uh, That's sort of the whole motivation for the company in this film is they got to get that unobtainium. Yeah, got to get that money um, for unobtainium. You got to wonder: Do the characters see the irony in the name, or the attempt at irony in the name? I feel like in the world of the movie, it was. I imagine like they discover Pandora, they go there, they find it, and they just like name it that because they're like, this is, you know, this outrageously rare, uh, important mineral that we found. We'll call it unobtainium as sort of a nod to science fiction and stuff like that. Um, and they don't really explain what it does. They they say, you know, Giovanni Ribisi, who we were saying like kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in this casting. It's kind of yeah. weird. But he's a good sort of like slimy corporate guy who's always wearing like dress shirt with a loose tie and his sleeves rolled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what's he? A boiler room. It's sort of, I think the, uh, the thing I associate him with most. I always associate him with uh, Phoebe's brother and friends. That's what I, that's I, what I remember. I definitely him. don't associate him with Jack, Jack Jr. or something like that. Um, but, yeah, he, he explains at one point that a kilo of it is worth, like, however many millions of dollars or whatever, $200 million. Um, but they never really say what it does, which is a very a very kind of sci-fi move of, like, this is the important thing, and that's all you need to know. So, yeah, it's all a metaphor anyway. Yeah, so, so. We're just not going to go through the hassle of coming up with an actual story about it. Yeah. Uh, but, some, like I said... Here's here's me eating a little uh, crow, whatever that phrase means. Um, the bad guys in this movie are the right bad guys. Yes. Based on all the conversations we've had, who the bad guys in this movie are the American military, um, corporate America. <clears throat> In those, well, the, the uh, sort of maybe blind science, but but yeah. also I, I do think science is kind of blindly endorsed here, and it's like the, uh, one question I had watching this movie is, where are the artists? You know, like <laughs> like it, it conflates the sort of conscientious scientist with the kind of. Uh, you know, it casts the conscientious scientist as kind of the artist figure. You know, uh, I, I believe the actor's name is Stephen Lang, the guy from Dodgeball, uh, the the big nerdy guy who like speaks the speaks yeah. their language fluently. Um, he he's uh, sort of the closest we get to. Yeah, and he's an anthropologist, right? And that's my point. Is like he's still a scientist. You know, he just seems to care. Um, and so there's there's no real representation of uh, of a of the imagination. You know, these are all sort of scientifically minded people, um, and so, like I said, that room again. We've got uh, Avatar playing in the background. I keep getting sucked into it. Stephen Lang is. The general, 
Oh, that's the general. Yeah. I was reading all that. What's that guy's name? The the, the nerdy guy? He, his name is Joel David Moore. Joel David Moore. Okay. Uh, yeah. He, that's another weird, weird casting choice. Yeah. We've seen that guy in like Dodgeball and Grandma's Boy and then Avatar. Um, <laughs> in Avatar, what was at the time the highest grossing movie ever? Yeah. Is it not anymore? I'm pretty sure a couple of the uh, like Marvel movies have beat it out. Okay, but at the time it had made it. It might still be. I want to say I saw something that says maybe it made, and, and it's all relative to the time too. It made just a shade under three billion dollars. I think they like re-released it during that, or it was like yeah, it was out for like a year and then it went away and it came back like a year and a half later. I guess they like added five minutes or something. They extended the sex scene. And- they did do that because... Oh, actually, I guess Avatar apparently is still the highest grossing movie. Yeah, as I said, I remember seeing that. Um, Avengers End- And then Titanic, according to this list, is number three. I believe it. Which is crazy that that James Cameron would have two of the three, and that they would be like not only very different movies, but then again so far apart, and also like just kind of weird things to be the highest growth. I still don't understand why Titanic was as big as it was other than like DiCaprio and, and Winslet are kind of captivating and, yeah, well, and they, the, the they, special effects. You gotta remember too that DiCaprio and Winslet were not DiCaprio and Winslet. That's you know, true. When that movie came out that's what made them that. When was, when was Romeo plus Juliet? When was that? Is that after? That's before, right? Equals bad. Equals um, bad. No, I think that was. I think it was before. But well, I might have been because there's I no way DiCaprio would have done that after. I would think. Anyway, um, yeah, it's just, it's I think weird like, that. It seems to me the first movie I saw DiCaprio in after Titanic was The Beach, which is a really cool movie. Yeah. Uh, what's that guy's name? What's the director's name? He did Train Spotting. Um, Damn it. I don't know. <laughs> I'll look it up. But it's kind of interesting. And I will Danny give... Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. I don't want to give... Or I don't want to take credit away from Cameron for that because it is a staggering achievement. And not only that, but he did... He did it with two original intellectual properties. Whereas, you know, the other movies in the top ten list are like Marvel movies, which are based on these things that are already entrenched in the sort of popular culture psyche of, of America it's, and the it's world. It's capitalizing on something in some way pre-existing. Yeah, whereas Avatar and Titanic, although Titanic well, may be a little less so. Well, Titanic, yeah. Um, but are, are pretty much completely original concepts. Yeah, and, and, and you saw a lot of, uh, especially with Titanic, you saw a bunch of attempts. Uh, the most egregious and shitty one is Pearl Harbor. They're like, yeah. oh, let's fashion a romance around a national tragedy, and that equals money. Um, and that movie just sucks so bad. Yeah. Um, movie we, we won't be doing. No. Pro there's Parker. no reason at all to watch that movie. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, Avatar is this great big blowout, and it, in that way, uh, succeeds, like we were saying the the final kind of battle scene is incredibly epic Dude, and captivating when, at times. When when Jake Sully rides in to the little like worship ceremony towards the end on Teruk Maktau, 
Yeah. That's like the most badass shit in the world. Yes. Teruk Mac. I'm gonna name like a name my firstborn Teruk Mac. Writer of the Last Shadow. <laughs> Imagine people asking you what your child's name is. Oh, it's a Writer of the Last Shadow in Navi. <laughs> or uh, Old Knight. Old Knight. <laughs> we were just talking about the OA. Um, no, uh, going back to uh, James Cameron, I remember uh, reading something about him where someone was saying that he's often accused of, you know, just being a sort of spectacle-based, which, I mean, he is. Everything he's made is a, is a sort of spectacle. But you can't... I mean, there's a lot of movies that are just spectacle. Yeah. And so he's doing something to, to have two of the highest grossing films of all time under his belt. <laughs> That's a gross phrase. Um, is, is not a coincidence. And I remember reading something saying that he... Someone was saying when he was writing Titanic, they like this person writing the article knew him and, and said he was like reading books on like turn of the century uh, female adolescent psychology in like writing the character of Rose like what the fuck wow. it's like it, uh, I mean it doesn't seem like it's an especially <laughs> astute psychologically you know, he's just he's reading about the new woman trying to gear up for this movie right and it's like uh, I kind of respect that like I said it doesn't really shine through in, in the character of Rose I don't mm-hmm. think but maybe there are some things that we're just not picking up on that that make it so appealing to everyone <laughs> apparently I remember, do you remember when Titanic came out? We're just going to talk about Titanic the whole time. Yeah, I remember it being like the biggest thing. I remember like Pe- people just like went like like ten times to see. And it. And then when it came out on video, people like going and grabbing that uh, double VHS and just playing it until it wore out. I, I just remember being like a little shithead kid and like me and my friends watching the oh the, the scene, scene where the ship. Well, that well, yeah. yeah. I, I was going in a different direction. I've seen. I have seen that nude scene maybe more than any scene it's one of the most famous scenes probably I, in fan history at this I, point I stand by it like I, when I was like 12 and this movie came out and I thought it was like the hottest thing I've ever seen it's still pretty hot yeah um, as evidenced by the steam on the window not, not that not, not, uh, I guess the drawing scene <laughs> the drawing scene I mean the, the car sex like scene yeah, it's cool. I mean it's no tail sex but <laughs> <laughs> but it's damn close uh what was I talking about? Anyway, we would watch the the scene where the ship breaks in half, and there's a part where a guy falls and hits the propeller and starts spinning really yeah. fast. Yeah, and we would just like rewind that and laugh at it. <laughs> that was where we were. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it was the biggest. And you know, my heart will go on. Is is that? I was gonna ask. Is that a Celine Dion song playing at the end of Avatar in the credits? Is it? It I, sounds like I didn't it, watch. I don't. It watch sounds credits. very Titanic esque. Something, something we should we should point out that it's sort of important is that Will watches the credits of, <laughs> of everything. I, I sort of like quit and turn it no, off. No, what was it though? What was it? there? Was something very recently that you were like? Did you see the end? Like the after well, the credits? I kind like of the one it. thing I didn't watch the credits <laughs> on. There was something. What was it? Um, 
It was the end of not prom. What did we do before Promised Land? October Sky. Uh, no shit. I guess it wouldn't have been that either. I don't remember. Okja. Yeah, it was Okja. Was That's Ocha. what it is. Yeah, at the end of Okja. Um. Yeah, you got it. Man, caught you slipping. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Was it a Celine Dion song? That would be funny. What are you working on? The song at the end of Avatar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it just was out of place. No, it's Leona Lewis. Okay. Uh, but it sounds it's weird. Cool. I see you. It sounds kind of titanic. That's probably by design, I would imagine, uh, to make it sort of sweeping and epic. That way it would uh, both stick out and remind people of what was the biggest song in the world at the same time, which is like... The thing about... Do you remember that thing they used to do where when you'd have a big song from a movie, they would make a version of it that play on the radio that integrated clips, audio clips from the movie? No, I don't remember oh, that at all. It's, it's I remember the music videos it. incorporating clips. So they so they had one with... Uh, they had one for Titanic. And I, I remember sort of blushing every time because I'd seen it. And you hear that song on the radio and it had the clip, I want you to draw me wearing only this you know? and you're in the back seat with a bone you're like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, but they, they had one for Jerry Maguire too this must have been like a mid mid 90s phenomenon show me the money I can't remember or you had me hello yeah you had me hello I remember like one of my favorites and this is even earlier than that was uh, Kiss from a Rose from Batman Forever yeah still <laughs> yes. that song's awesome um, I, re- I just remember the video and how it's like weird that still singing this like really sort of passionate love song and you have like Jim Carrey as the Riddler like jumping around um, the director's like it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense it's gonna work <laughs> it's gonna make a butt ton of money yeah um, speaking, speaking of which I, we might uh, Corey and I on Will Watch's Corey's Canon might be doing Batman Forever very soon hell yeah uh, we were discussing that I haven't seen that movie in for, I, I really when I was a kid I liked all those what are now seen as kind of shitty Batman movies. A controversial opinion, Val Kilmer's my favorite Batman. He was a good one. Yeah. I liked it. Um, anyway, back back to Avatar yeah. for a minute, I guess. Uh, so <laughs> For a minute. For a minute. So to, to keep on this sort of novelty uh, train of thought we're on, we mentioned we both have a comparison that we wanted to make between this movie and, and something else. And we didn't tell each other what it was. Right. Uh, so do you, do you want to go first or do you want me to, to talk well, about Well, mine is just pure candy. It has no okay weight to it at all. If Avatar were a type of shoe, <laughs> it would be an L.A. gear. <laughs> yes. Because it's, it's like all about... Uh, it, it's like a new sort of flashy, literally flashy thing that's just a regular fucking shoe if you're actually looking at it. But it's like, ooh, pay attention to the lights. <laughs> it's like, but when it's dark, you can see my feet. <laughs> right. Um, there, uh, you haven't seen it yet, but the uh, Leaving Neverland, Michael Jackson documentary oh, yeah. that makes you want to kill yourself and everybody around you. <laughs> There's a, a scene where they're talking about Michael Jackson invited one of the kids to come visit because he was releasing his LA gear sneaker and I was watching it and I was like man this is fucked up but that shoe's kind of cool <laughs> I would wear that um, uh, the LA Richard gear <laughs> so 
my comparison is a little bit more serious, but it's it's really not. <laughs> I'm glad I went first. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, from 2005, so a few years before this, Terrence Malick's The New World. Yeah, I mean, it's Pocahontas. Because it's Pocahontas. Sure. Yeah. But not just that, even thinking about it from like a film standpoint. Because I remember watching The New World and thinking, this movie is incredibly long and it's sometimes painfully boring, but it's incredibly beautiful to look at. I, that middle, I, I admittedly, I'm just like a Terrence Malick fucking fanboy, so forgive me, but that middle section of The New World where he is, you know, doing the Pocahontas thing where, where he's like joining the Native American community and learning their ways is like 30 minutes of pure fucking film beauty just again he's doing the Terrence Malick thing where he's the the natural lighting Uh, I watched some documentary about the making of this and it's like everything is authentically built they like didn't use any modern technology to build the sets because they didn't want it they wanted they wanted to look handmade Uh, he just goes above and beyond and that movie I, I, I agree with you that there are some uh, it's it's a little too long and it's there are boring moments but sometimes it's uh, I don't mind being bored with with the, some of the aspects of that story just to see yeah. this amazing sort of um, sort of aesthetic achievement so think about it as like a like a not really a timeline because I'm going to talk about them out of chronological order. But think about three films together. One of them being James Cameron's Avatar. The other one being uh, Terrence Malick's The New World, and then the third one being Disney's Pocahontas. And think about them as being on this like spectrum of, of that kind of story being told. Or Dances with Wolves. Or Dances with Wolves, yeah. the other one. Uh, and go, going from like. The New World as being kind of the least accessible, the one that probably the fewest people have seen, but being like, you know, technically marvelous, and then to like Pocahontas and Dances of Wolves and all those movies that were like big hits and like won Oscars. Then you have Avatar, which is sort of at the top of the heap as far as like people have seen it. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, not only that, but it was also nominated for, for all these awards from the Academy. And it made all this money and, and made all these technological breakthroughs because so much of this movie, like, it's one of those movies where a majority of it is not real people acting in a real set, right? It's mostly all green screen. Yeah, it, it, it's weird how it's, it's kind of the opposite of what I just said about the new world and Terrence Malick's insistence on. Yeah, handmade. yeah. Like none of this is handmade. None of the, no. there's no there's no practical effects. Handmade by computers. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is a you know it. Probably, well, not probably. It took a lot of skill, right? A lot of technical well, it, skill. It's, to a, it's a movie. A different it's a movie that critiques. It's a movie that requires the military-industrial complex in order to supposedly critique the military-industrial complex. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Needs the world's most advanced technology to critique advancing right. technology. Right. Right. But it does have the, the sort of the same kind of feel of the the kind of unspoiled forest, right? Yes. It, it's something that uh, it comes through in the New World that I'm kind of obsessed with in these old kind of old American stories of uh, 
you know, these sprawling, unspoiled forests, so dense that you like can't see where they end and all that kind right. of stuff. You see it in the Revenant. The Revenant, yeah. yeah. And going back to like Longfellow's, uh, was it Endymion? Endymion? Evangeline? What am I thinking of? I, I think Evangeline's the, the anime on Netflix. Um, but you know, he says that you know this is the forest primeval. This is the first line of it, um, and just that sort of that feeling of these uh, this vast, seemingly never-ending wilderness that you get from like a Dances with Wolves, and then things like the Revenant or even like Deadwood. It just keeps moving with the frontier. And that's the whole you know Turner's whole frontier thesis and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with uh, with Avatar it's even kind of expanded and, and it's set up in the same kind of way that you get with like Wild West narratives. So when they well, yeah, get there... Yeah. Instead of... It's just it's just different iterations of a new world. So yeah. the, the Wild West is the new frontier um, in, you know, in Deadwood or whatever. Uh, the West uh, in, in general uh, in America in Dances with Wolves America in the New World and Pandora in yeah. Avatar. But like when, when they arrive, when uh, Jake Sully arrives there and they're uh, getting the, the briefing from from the, the colonel or whatever, the, the, the bad guy. Yeah, um, yeah and I want to like everything, everything outside this fence wants to kill you and eat your eyes for juju peas. <laughs> uh, and that's just sort of the general... That is the kind of frontier danger thing that we get from movies like Pocahontas or like Wild West movies of like you stay within the fort and the fort is the only place you can be safe because out there everyone not only can kill you but wants to kill you like seeks to end your life why? because they're savages because they have weird beliefs and they're violent and they're not as advanced as us so on and so forth Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas in the film it's kind of maintained and something I wanted to bring up is that they all have this very the Navi have this very strong connection with their planet um, and it's weird that the film has to sort of uh, has to sort of what's the word like ratify that by giving it a kind of scientific basis because Sigourney Weaver talks yeah, I, about I was this. definitely going to bring this up <laughs> the whole you know, planet's like you know a brain she, you know what she says she says I wish I had the exact quote she said I'm not talking about some you know like abstract mumbo jumbo she's like I'm talking about something uh, like biological I'm talking about something real yes because that which she said I'm talking about something quantifiable and measurable because that which is real is that which is quantifiable and measurable and and that's what I mean about like when I make the point about there's no representation of like the artistic imagination in this movie uh, and it's a a it's it's not enough to have the you know the weird geeky guy as the representative of that because that's the sort of mindset that's the extent of the artistic mindset is that oh isn't it cool that you know there's this measurable phenomenon that is like a brain and it, even as she's dying she's like we should take samples you know and that's <laughs> supposed to be like a funny thing but it's kind of yeah. fucked up it, it's it's a thing where she's trying it's sort of interesting because she is, like you say, even up to her death, trying to understand it and observe it and collect samples and, and quantify it. And, and to what end? Yeah, when the Navi are literally just 
living within it. And they already they don't hide any of this stuff. It's just humans. The humans of the film don't understand it. And, and that's what what you want to ask the characters. Uh, you know, the science uh, scientist characters is what do you think you're doing here? Because the narrative of this film is that it's like oh they come to see that the corporation has bad intentions. They're like. What the fuck do you think you were doing there in the first place? Yeah. Like, this was never a, a, a well-intentioned plan. And you have, I mean, unless you're just the most naive person in the world, would, would you assume some sort of, uh, you know, good intentions of this uh, putting corporate CEO, uh, <laughs> which again, I was going to bring up the, the golf, the recurring golf theme. They and literally I, have a putting green in the 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 war room. The war room. room. Like this is, yes. Um, that you were saying is like the encapsulation of all of the bad shit. That yeah, they're doing it's, it's science, uh, corporations, and the military. This is this is where they surveillance. Yeah, and, and and of course you have the uh, the golf course in there. The yeah, putting green. and it would have been really great uh, if they would have given Rabisi some sort of line about like. Let's level this forest so we can put in a, you know, an eighteen-hole golf course. Or something. Well, like, when you see, there's one point where they're like on this like digital, uh, sort of holographic map, and he's look. I think Rabisi is looking for the, the big sacred tree or whatever. Yeah. And there's like this clear-cut spot on the map, and it kind of looks like a golf course. It may just be their like camp or whatever. Well, you see the uh, when they when they first arrive on the planet or when we first arrive with Jake on the planet you see the mine that they dug out which you can go and find pictures of what look exactly like that mine in Africa or Russia or you know wherever it may be um, but you fly over this ginormous hole in the ground that is this mine um, so yeah it would have been interesting to see them like setting up a golf course and you have all the guys out there with the breather mask on like Hitting drive and, and the gravity's not as strong, so they're just like smashing right. the ball. It would be like that uh, scene at the end of Interstellar when they're playing baseball on yeah. the, the giant spaceship. And Interstellar is kind of an interesting comparison because in that film, the mission is seemingly has no sort of you know corporate capitalist goals. It's just save humanity, right? And NASA's right. doing it. Right. And that's all you know. Yeah, it's like within the world of the story, there's there's not that. But it's like 10 seconds of kind of contemplation. Like, oh, this is, in the real world, this is led by corporate, you know, corporate greed. Um, you're right, though. Sigourney Weaver's avatar is pretty smoking. Yeah, she's she first comes out, giving me blue balls. <laughs> <laughs> when you first see her, and she comes down here, little like Stanford half shirt, yeah. and even Jake's like, "Whoa!" She's like, "Who'd you think it was, numb nuts?" And like throws him that fruit. Um, it's a little strange. Yeah, and so now we're, we have it playing in the background. There's a scene where he first links up with his horse, horse fucker, and uh, so so yeah. I was watching this, and there's a difference between when they link with their their ponytail. I, I just agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's called a ponytail. Uh, and and with their tails, 
because when they link with their tails, they're fucking. Yeah, but they also like sexually reproduce because you see them. You see some of them carrying babies later on. Yeah. So they that they don't like inseminate one another through their ponytail. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I googled. How do Navi reproduce? Because I had to know. Really, I pornhub it. <laughs> and so, according to the Avatar wiki that I found, um, the what they do, and I forget what the word for it was, like Sahelu or whatever. That sounds like an Arabic word. And they uh, connect that, and that's how they like bond for life. And that's like says it gives them a pleasure that humans could never experience. That sort of weird stuff. But then they Hell also yeah. have more like apparently traditional kinds of mating because they they reproduce so it's the practical yeah and then there's like the deeper sort of like almost spiritual connection that they have and in the the wiki Man, article, i would just do that kind <laughs> well the wiki article it goes into like weird amounts of detail to point out that like well you know it's not it's a, just some dude in his basement writing this well <laughs> it made them sound like they're not only that, that they're polyamorous and that it never causes any problems within their society because the bonding for life sort of overshadows all the other kind of activity. Mm-hmm. So imagine, like, if everyone got married and then went and, like, fucked other people and it never caused a problem ever. Right. And then also mentions that um, same-sex couple couplings are, are not uncommon. So that, that wiki did some research, went into some detail about things that are not even remotely brought up in the film. Right. Wow, James Cameron's so progressive. <laughs> and so, I want to talk about it as, let's talk about the movie as a love story a little bit. Um, because that's an important part of it. So, James Cameron's not going to have one of these movies without a love story, right? So, it's Jack and Rose and Titanic, and then here we have um, Jake and, and uh, Natiri. And in The Abyss, we have Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth... Monstrayana or whatever her name is. Monstrosity. Um, so it, there's definitely that love thing. And the sex scene kind of got... I remember when the film was released, that was sort of the sort of controversial thing of like, oh, weird alien sex scene. You know, I'm, I think you said sort of jokingly that the extended cut or whatever had more sex in it. But the version I watched this morning, it... it there was like almost none. Yeah. It was like they're in that sort of sacred grove and then they like they're like making out and then it just kind of like fades away. And I remember I've seen a version before where there's like some sensual kind of suggestiveness way more than what I saw today. I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> well, it it kind of reminded me of a the reason everybody was kind of down on the shape of water, which is that there's weird, like, interspecies sex stuff happening. Yeah. Everybody called it the fish sex movie. Right. And somehow that was enough to dismiss it as a work of art. Um, which, you know, was it Was it the best movie? Was it best picture? Uh, well, well, it won it, so yes. But was it, like, did it, was it deserving of best picture? Right. Um, you know, I don't know. But I thought it was a good movie. Like, I enjoyed it. Was um, it competing against First Reformed? Uh, no nothing was because it didn't get nominated exactly it didn't even win best picture at the spirit awards Uh, Ethan Hawke won best actor at the spirit awards yeah but but like Schrader didn't win 
I'm going to find a way to talk about First Reformed in every episode. Well, the way here would be like through the spiritual element of it, probably. Probably some way you could shoehorn it in. Um, but yeah, like as a, as a love film or as a love story, I, I mean, uh, the problem comes up of this whole white savior complex thing that is, is a big knock against the movie that's been made since it was released, which is that Jake Sully is able to come in and basically defeat the bad guy, get the girl, become king of the, the Navi, um, all within a relatively short amount of time. Um, and I think the way Zizek put it was even even more kind of on more bluntly, which was, oh, this person who, you know, in human life it is not only, uh, you know, paraplegic and sort of, you know, philandering through life, kind of the worst of our society is able to go and conquer their society through kind of sheer force of will. Mm-hmm. And, um, which, you know, I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but it is it does have that problem of, you know, the white savior coming in and, and sort of adopting the ways of the natives and, and going fully native. And not only that, but going native and doing it better than even the natives exactly. themselves. Exactly. I was going to say, when, when, when an American puts his mind to something, he can do it better. Especially a Marine. Hoorah. Exactly. There's a hoorah somewhere in there. Yeah. And it's like voiceover. I will say that, like, it, it, we've already mentioned it a little bit, but I really liked how stupid they made all the military guys look. Yeah, they have kind of like overweight and... Uh, a lot of them are kind of overweight and just disheveled and and they have a bunch of they say the dumbest cliche shit like uh, oh get some uh, and they also are bad actors in some cases that one there's like a weird sort of guy you follow uh, military guy who's uh, the bald guy kind of super muscly bald yeah, guy yeah, yeah. when he dies guy. his like exit scream is Pretty terrible. I think he's the guy that was like, get some, yeah. like shooting the, the gun out of the helicopter. Yeah. And so when he dies, he gets stomped to death by one of those big dinosaur looking things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's weirdly satisfying. Like, yeah, fuck you. You know, something, thinking about the military guys um, reminded me of this. And it's sort of related to what I was saying about the kind of disdain for the human body. So, I mean, the movie's called Avatar, but there's a few different iterations of avatars in this movie. You have the uh, obvious sort of Navi bodies that Jake and Grace inhabit, but you also have these military robots that the uh, that the soldiers occupy and... and um, Control, and I think just in the design, so so the Navi look very, you know, Native American and uh, indigenous and primitive in a lot of ways, and they have tat- the, what I guess it's not tattoos, but it kind of looks like tattoos the way their skin is, uh, and the military avatars, these robots are. I mean, they're robots. They're, they look industrial and, you know, they look like Transformers kind of. Yeah. Uh, and so we're, in some way, I think we're supposed to, you know, find favor with the, the Navi. But it's almost more fucked up. It's almost like the military avatar is like more honest. 
you know what I'm saying? It, again, in thinking about this issue of like disdain for the human body, uh, at least that robot doesn't think it actually is this other thing. You know what I'm saying? Whereas yeah. in, when Jake and Grace inhabit the uh, the Navi bodies, they think, or they, uh, especially at the end, it's clear that they want to be these other things. Yeah. There's no mistaking it in the case of the military robots. It's clear that there is a human controlling this machine, uh, man-made machine, which is exactly what's happening with the Navi bodies as well. But that's not what the film suggests is happening. It's just that it's a more complex technology, but it's still an artificial man-made thing. I, I was thinking about this and I sort of Googled it and there was some article that actually turned out to be like a, a really religious, sort of biblical-based article, uh, strangely, about about uh, this article was quoting... Uh, like Corinthians or something about bodies. <laughs> it was very strange, but uh, yeah, the the assumption that this article is saying that this film makes is that you are the same you no matter what body you inhabit, which is just you know the sort of mind body dualism of like you know Plato. Uh, like there is an essential you that is uh, divorced, separate from your body and I think that's a terrible terrible message and as and part of that sort of disdain that I keep mentioning now they're swimming naked <laughs> got distracted um, yeah it's interesting to because they keep saying interesting like I'm a fucking middle school uh, but I like that this idea of once again to avatar bodies they decide like this is kind of the real me right and, they, and that is like you're saying there, there's a kind of dishonesty in that of like why wouldn't you want to be the nine foot tall blue thing with carbon fiber bones like duh that's kind of a, kind of a brain <laughs> but something that happens early on in the film uh, that made me think of that which is when they capture Jake Jake's avatar the Navi and they take it back to their their tree village and the uh, spiritual leader lady, I guess is Natiri's mother, um, says to Jake, we'll, we'll keep you and like teach you our ways and see if we can cure your illness. Ins- insanity. Yeah, cure your insanity. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, in, in, from, you know, 150, 200 years ago, that would be going native, right? It's like forgetting the, the civilized ways and... and Adopting the ways of the, this this uh, other this indigenous group, um, but here that seems it seems to be like he realizes his insanity, right? And it's kind of what gives him away to the uh, the guy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Quaritch, I think the the bad guy. Um, is he finds one of Jake's um, video logs where he's explaining like what do we have to offer them? Like, I forget what he says. He's like Coca-Cola and blue jeans, shopping malls, whatever. Yeah. He's like, they don't, they don't want anything we have. Like we don't have anything right. to no. offer. Them. Yeah. He's saying there's no deal. 
that's going to be made. Yeah. Because we have nothing to offer them. And and that comes up a few times, like Giovanni Urbisi and Sigourney Weaver, like, oh, we tried to offer them education, teach them English, which is, I thought was weird, like, that's the only language they're bothering to try to teach them. Um, and, you know, they even set up the school and read them the Lorax as if they need to read the Lorax, as if there's any lesson in it for them. Like, yeah, duh, don't cut down the trees. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it's just interesting to think about how as much as anything can, it's trying to show that kind of change and that sort of less of a commandeering of a native culture as much as a sort of good faith adoption of it. Because at the end, you don't feel as if Jake is like, you know, taking this culture lightheartedly, right? He, like, right. he, he does all the stuff and goes through all the trouble and uh, becomes Torah Kamakto or whatever and, and fights the, the, the battle. So um, he becomes... Wait. So is Tarek Maktal the name of the dragon? The, the, that thing the is name named Tarek. And the Tarek Maktu is writer of Tarek. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought I thought the dragon's name was Tarek Maktal. No, that, that's his name. Is He becomes... It's like an honorific title. Like right. he becomes... That's, that's maybe more badass. It's pretty badass. I have to say, this whole thing of like... Nothing hunts it, so why would it ever look up? <laughs> Jumps on onto it, um, which that happens pretty quickly. Like some of the things in the film that are big important things, yeah, it's, it's pretty all quickly and off screen. Yeah, yeah, you don't see him. Uh, and they they explain, and I wanted to bring that up too because they explain like right now this is the scene where he gets his first banshee or whatever I forget what the Navi called them, but one of the dragon things, and. The whole thing that's explained to him by Neytiri is it will choose you, like, and, and you'll sort of know. But then when he becomes Torek Makto, he just imposes himself upon the the dragon thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the will's power. Yeah, so it's a sort of like weird domination thing that even happens now when he gets his first right. Well, and he says, "You're mine." Yeah, like I'm. That seems counter to the whole philosophy yeah where they're very respectful and like even when she Natiri saves him at the beginning when they first meet and she kills the dog hyena things and she gets mad at him because like they didn't need to die but because you're an idiot I had to kill them um so yeah Yeah, I like that scene actually yeah it's and it sort of sets up the way that the Navi see things for the rest of the film pretty well um, in a short amount of time she's saying like you're like a stupid baby <laughs> doesn't know anything she says that like four times in a minute I'm like is this bad writing or is there like a joke there I'm not getting I, it might have just been like that's the only way she knows to explain it to him in English <clears throat> um, so uh, you mentioned the general uh, Porich or whatever his name is and I thought it was interesting how at a certain point, I don't know if this is, let me, let me pull my vino real quick. I don't know if this is quite qualifying as the, uh, the bitch-ass backpedal, but at a certain <laughs> point, the narrative shifts the blame from Giovanni Rubisi, the, you know, the corporate CEO. It shifts the blame to the general. Yeah. As if 
the real culprit of imperialism were the military personnel as opposed to like larger political interests you know fueling or uh, sort of voting on and uh, starting political wars that, that, that result in imperialist projects uh, and so it's, it's it, it kind of, the more I guess when I say it out loud it does kind of feel like a bitch ass backpedal <laughs> uh, because uh, it sets up Giovanni Ribisi as this sort of arch kind of bad guy and then he's just kind of seen as a kind of childish pawn in a way and and uh, the general just like goes rogue and is like doing all this crazy shit and I think there's something a little bit dishonest about that it's like yes I do think I mean obviously it's exaggerated in a lot of ways but yeah, there's something a little bit psychotic and sort of hawkish, war-hungry military, you know, old-school military guys. But they do what they're told. You know what I'm saying? They only fight wars that they're told to fight, that they're allowed to fight. Um, so, and that felt a little dishonest. Yeah, and, that, and the way that it happens is all very quickly of, like, they... Uh, they bomb the tree, or they demolish the tree, basically the, the home tree. Yeah. And Giovanni Ribisi's character sees it and, like, feels kind of bad about it. And that's it. Like, that's all it takes for him to become less of the bad guy. Mm-hmm. It's for him to be like, oh, this is too far. Right. Right. Um, when he, you know, he was the one that yeah, allowed it to happen. Because Jake says, uh, basically, he argues for diplomacy. Like, yeah. let me go talk. I can convince him to move. And so you see there is this kind of uh, rational morality within this character played by Giovanni Ribisi. Uh, and somehow that justifies him in some way. And, and, and that's, the, yeah, right there, that's the shift from him to Quaritch or whatever the hell his name is. Yeah, and then he, he you know, the one that's, Drinking his cup of coffee as he watches them blow the shit out of everything, and it's just like always half a second away from saying, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, pumping iron, all the like tough guy bullshit, and um, does become the sort of like blood hungry, you know, mass murderer at the end of it. Yeah, it's like, it's like personal vengeance. It even and you know his rationale for it to all the his fellow soldiers who are as Jake says when he arrives like these aren't they're not fighting for anything they're mercenaries they're here like on the payroll and even the something he said that like drove me nuts was he says back in America they were Marines fighting for freedom and you're like fuck you no they weren't I I meant to I meant to make a note of that yeah uh, and they notice that they mention and that's uh, real early. Yeah, and that's to get the fucking audience on on its side. Yeah, it's know? like th- these are the bad soldiers, but it's okay because they're not on Earth and they're not actual soldiers. They're not real troops. They're yeah, the real troops are fucking cool. Uh, and it's it's hinted at that there have been wars in Venezuela and Nigeria at this yeah. point. Yeah, um, which is terrifying because <laughs> um, this is set in like twenty one fifty or something. Um, so yeah. You know, Hundred and something years somewhere in the twenty second century, um, 
but it, you know it's mentioned like these aren't the real troops they're just fighting uh, for money but there's a, the uh, scene at the end when Quaritch is, is rallying them all for war and he says you know the only way to protect ourselves is a preemptive strike because we have to hit them first um and I think he even says, or somebody says at one point, we'll meet terrorism with terrorism. And they even use the phrase shock and awe campaign, yeah. Yeah. like shortly after that. Uh, so, you know, 2009, this is all stuff that's still pretty fresh. Yeah, especially it's probably written in like 2003 or something, you know. Yeah. So it's still, you know, that's all stuff that we're all very aware of. But again, the, the fact that it's taking place, you know, on Pandora means that it's you know, you're able to put enough distance in it to where it's not overtly political. People are able to watch it and be like, oh, you know, that works for Pandora. Well, it's the people, the people who would get it will get it. And the people who wouldn't get it won't get it. Yeah. Which in a way, which is a very conservative, safe thing to do. Yeah. It's like the, the movie was born of a bitch ass backpedal. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, because, you know, you're made to remember, like, this isn't Earth, because in the film, Earth has failed. And at the end, they, they even say, you know, that the aliens went, or Jake in his voiceover says, the aliens went back to their dying planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the aliens are, are us, our people. Um, who, and, you know, go back to Unobtainium for a minute, mentions that they're, we've sort of exerted all the Earth's uh, resources Unobtainium isn't really helping with that as far as we know, except for making some people a bunch of money for some reason. Like, it's not feeding people, it's not improving yeah. water supplies. Like, I don't really know what's yeah, going on with it's that. It's almost like a, like a blood diamond. It's just like, I it, mean, are rich, yeah. rich people wearing this as like jewelry or something? Like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Well, they talk about it being a superconductor, but I don't really know what that would mean. You could use it in, in certain kinds of technology, but even then, I don't know exactly what it would be doing. Here's a super surface level observation. What's the warrior guy's name that he's sort of in competition, that Jake is sort of in competition with the whole movie? Oh, shit, I, I can't remember know. that guy's name. Anyway, his death scene is really badass too. When he uh, dismounts his dragon and hops onto the military aircraft that has the explosives on it and just kicks ass for like 20 seconds and then gets blown away and falls hundreds of feet to his death. It's it, freaking cool. It, I enjoyed that because it emphasizes just how enormous the Navi are uh, next yeah. to humans, which is kind of, you know, when they're when Jake wakes up in the Avatar for the first time and you see how just enormous he is. But, you know, he's just sort of, like, grabbing people and, like, flinging them out of the, the right. helicopter thing and, like, hitting them with his bow and arrow. His name is uh, Sute. Sute, oh, yeah. Sute, yeah. Played by Laz Alonzo. It's something that is not important, but I found it a little unsettling how they make all the avatars and even all the like non-avatar Navi look like the actors and actresses in real life. Yeah. So like, kind of weird. Yeah, that you know they make uh, Sam Worthington's look kind of like him, but as a giant blue cat person. Yeah. Especially, you can especially tell with uh, when you say Joel David Moore. The nerdy guy. Yeah. Yeah. It, looks, it just looks like him. Yeah. And he wears the vest. I will say, even though I've been talking shit about, you know, there's no artists in this movie, uh, he's the closest thing to it. I did get kind of pumped when that guy starts throwing punches because it, it's this sort of, 
you know, geeky kind of academic, uh, you know, he's this guy who's obsessed with the language and he's just kind of neurotic and finicky and bookwormish. And then he becomes invested in this drama and literally, you know, starts throwing punches for something he believes in. And I, I got a little, I got a little, uh, I got some tingles for that. A tingle in my dingus. Yeah. No, and he, he's like, you know, in the jungle, and he's like firing the machine gun like yep. at the, at the yep. troops. Um, which is, that battle, something to talk about in there is how Jake basically goes and prays to the god. Awa. Awa. Uh, goes in and connects with the, the, the tree of souls and is like, please help us. And uh, Natiri's like, oh, that's not how it works. Like, uh, that's, that's not, you know, she doesn't, or it doesn't answer prayers. And he's like, oh, you know, I thought it was worth a try. And then during the battle, all the, uh, wildlife comes and starts, like, destroying the helicopters and running over the, the troops and all that. And Natiri's whole thing is like, hey, well, I heard you. <laughs> um, so it was like a weird... God's not dead. Yeah, that, it, was, it was sort of a weird thing of, um... The, the planet protecting itself, um, which is a little... The happening. Yeah, yeah sort of <laughs> yeah. like the happening. It was it was strange to me. Um, especially because, as she was saying, it appeared that even though it's this interconnected system and it's like a giant brain and it, they can communicate with it and it sort of keeps their cultural memory and all this sort of stuff... Um, it's never until that point. It's not presented as like a any sort of you know all powerful force or something like that. Sort of like transcendent, yeah. supernatural, yeah. Um, and that's kind of when that that changes, right? Little, and so all the Christians in the audience are like, "Okay, I'm on board with this." Oh, it's like God. Oh, okay. I see. Just imagine if we found out God existed. It was like a miasma of chemical receptor <laughs> like something weird like that right uh, that, that's kind of what's going just on just utterly explicable you know yes you know quantifiable measurable real uh, to me that's one of the most revealing I, I feel like that line exists very intentionally to like lend credibility to the story it's like oh this is scientific Therefore, it's real. And, and as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's that's just very strange. That's out yeah. of place. Um, and like I said, the only part of that that I can even remotely uh, like is that the Navi just explain it to them, basically, when they get there. It's like, this is our deity. It's all, connect all living things living in this connection. And because humans are humans and just sort of suck by default... Uh, are like, oh, okay, well, that's whatever. It's their stupid religion. Who cares? We'll just sort of appease them. But it's like, no, that's really what it is. It's right. just they're not explaining it to you as physicists or whatever. Right. And I do like, uh, I do like Giovanni Rubisi's, uh reaction when uh, Grace Sigourney Weaver explains the sort of network of connections between all living things. And he, he's like got that real serious look on his face, and then he just bursts out laughing. And he says, "What have you guys been smoking out there?" And it, it, it you sort of you you know that person who's just like 
you know, any sort of spiritual notion is utterly unthinkable in their mind. And they're so self-assured and... So, yeah, religion's cool, but have you tried money? <laughs> yes. And he even says, uh, oh, you can't throw a stick on this planet without hitting a sacred bush or, you know, something like that. Right. Hit a, hit a bush with your stick. Um, and so he he's very much only concerned with, um, you know, the dollar signs. And he... It, a sort he's, of, like, he's like if, if Daniel Plainview were an 80s college villain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and just the scene where they're talking about the spirit, or not spirit tree, the tree of souls. Uh, I don't, never mind, they're talking about like the home tree where they all live. And he says, well, the problem is the richest deposit of unobtainium within however many clicks is right underneath the tree. Mm-hmm. We need So we need to remove this tree so we can get to that. Um, which is, you know, a lot like on Earth, when we're like, you know, the, your village is on top of an oil deposit, and you right. need to get the hell out of here. Right. Um, oh, here we are at the uh, erotic tree connection scene. Hell yeah! You, okay, so watch this, and tell me if this is less erotic than what the version you watched. Where did you watch it? I. It's not streaming anywhere, and I don't own a Blu-ray or anything, so I watched it on like a illegal okay. <laughs> movie site. So, you, do you know what version it was? I do not. Okay. It was it was the one that I more or less remembered. So okay, okay. So this is just the uh, just is just a Blu-ray that we've got playing in the background here, and it doesn't say extended cut or director's cut or anything like that. I don't know how many versions there are. Uncut. This is like the softcore version, I'm pretty sure. You got, you got the cable version. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll say it's interesting that just like... It's pretty family friendly. <laughs> really yeah, yeah, but then like Nateria, like her boobs are just kind of out the entire film. Yeah. But there's no nipple, so it's like, okay. Well, no I mean, visible. It's not no visible, visible nipple. She's yeah. got her little tassels <laughs> covering it. But I guess the, the argument would be like, oh, they're not human, so it's... I, I think we all... Let's just be honest. We all wanted to see some Navi Dong. <laughs> Navi Dong. <laughs> Feliz Navi Dong. <laughs> uh, happy Navi Dong. <laughs> I mean, their little loincloths aren't that big, so they must be growers. Okay. So we've got some, some hot tongue action here. Yeah, which uh, it's weird that wouldn't it be funny if like Navi don't kiss and she's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" I thought about that weirdly. Okay, here we go. Give me that girl. Give me that ponytail. She's very, very cat-like, just rubbing rubbing her face on his face. Now she's sitting on top of the room. Now they're pissing all over everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, end of section. Oh, then he wakes up. Oh. See? No tail fucking. Oh, he definitely had some nocturnal emissions. <laughs> yeah. Alternatively titled nocturnal animals. Uh, it's yeah. also, it, there's a, there's a, a more erotic sex scene version of that, right? Yeah, and we're going to okay. Google it later, but yeah, we don't have time right now. I do, it's, it's funny that while he's asleep, while the, the Avatar is asleep, he's awake as a human, mm-hmm. but then he goes to sleep as a human. And it's just sort of this, these weird sort of overlapping consciousnesses mm-hmm. in the film um, that don't really 
they only come into play because Jake's tired all the time because he's awake and then he's awake and he's not eating and all that mm-hmm. sort of shit. Um, this is reminding me very much of uh, the the trees being bulldozed now uh, of uh, Fern Gully. Yeah. Which I don't really remember much about, but it seems like it's about a forest being destroyed, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, that's I that's that. kind of the thing. I literally saw that movie like 25 years it, ago. It's one we're going to have to do at some point uh, is go back and watch Fern yeah, Gully. Yeah, Because I feel like that's one people would appreciate. Um, people like it when you do films they've seen or that don't aren't like weird niche things, I think. Um, yeah, that's why... Everyone needs to go watch First Reform, you lazy motherfuckers. We should. Just, we'll start another podcast where we just talk about First Reformed every week. It'll be First Reformed, Second Reformed, Third Reformed. We'll call it called the uh, First Reformed Church of First Reformed. Yes. So we saw Danya, who has made a pretty good name for herself, being in these like massive sci-fi. What else is she in? Her she looks very familiar. Well, she was in Star Trek. Oh yeah. And then she was in like the JJ Abrams Star Trek. Right? Yeah. And then she was in Guardians of the Galaxy. Right as Gamora. Am I? I really hope I'm not confusing her with another actress because that would be embarrassing. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure that that was her. Uh, yes, that was her. Yeah. This is. This is definitely uh, Fern Gully, <laughs> but with Giovanni Ribisi. Oh, and uh, this made me think about some uh, the the scene here where Jake climbs up on the bulldozer and smashes the uh, camera. It made me think about eco terrorism. Yes, destroying some corporate property, which is really the only the real crime that the Navi. Well, you know, quote unquote crime that they carry out is destroying corporate property, mm-hmm. burning and you know blowing up bulldozers, uh, stuff like that. And it's just, it's just the parallels in real life are are kind of staggering. Of like, you imagine a logging company in the Amazon um, with backing from like a government's mili- like the Brazilian well, military or something. Just, just imagine. I mean, in in the exaggerated. Example of this is, uh, you know, a, a civilization travels across, you know, through space. <laughs> a six-year trip. You know, a six-year trip through space comes here, tries to bulldoze, you know, and mine, and then says that the indigenous people are aggressive. You know, yeah. they're, they're the aggressors. Because they won't let us just tear the shit Right, up. it's... It's so obviously fucked up. It, it seems like bad writing, but it's like spot on. Yeah. For, you know, quote unquote, the new world. And let me say something while I'm thinking about that phrase, the new world, uh, about the film, the new world. A lot of people sort of balk at that because it's kind of an offensive term uh, to Native Americans. Uh, but if you, ha- if you haven't seen the movie, uh, or if you've seen the movie, you know that the movie is basically a big project of kind of overturning the logic of that phrase. And the the new world referred to in the title is actually uh, England that the Pocahontas character 
um, goes to at the end of the film and and so correctly situates that phrase, the new world, in what is actually the new world at that point in history, the sort of you know modern sort of European city, um, which is you know at the time it's a new thing. Anyway, that was on my on my mind. Back to Avatar. Well, no, well in in Avatar, Pandora is literally a new world, right? Well. Um, no to humans, right? Right. Yeah. It's it, it's yeah. That's the logic. I think that that the Terrence Malick's the New World is kind of arguing against yeah. of like yeah, it's not the New World. It's only the New World because that that's just a term that we're using because we're, we're defining the world through our relationship to it as opposed yeah. to history. And whereas, you know, it, so it, humans have Pandora as this kind of, you know, idea of a new world. And unlike in the film The New World, they have no interest whatsoever in, in traveling to Earth or sort of seeing what humans are, are working with over on their planet. Right. Um, because they have, you know, a species that truly lives in harmony with the nature of their planet, right? And and that's an interesting proposition in, in Avatar Two. Do you think Natiri goes with Jake to Earth? I, yeah, I that, that's sort of the continuation of the Pocahontas story. I feel like Avatar Two is just going to be like a massive it'll be like so if you think about these films in comparison to like Independence Day and humans in Avatar are the aliens from Independence Day who they say are just coming to sort of use all of our resources and then they um, so I think Avatar 2 might be like Independence Day 2 except it's the humans coming back right, right. And, and, and the Navi are like maybe prepared for them and that sort of thing mm-hmm. because as soon as they leave at the end my first thought when I watched it originally and when I watched it this time was well they're just going to come back in force like right. in, in mass and, and take back this unobtainium right they're not going to they know that there's you know billions of dollars available they're not going to just give up no no um so it'll be interesting to see where they go with it um, and whether or not they limit it to just Pandora or if they open Pandora's box and see what, see what else is going on. Um, Pandora's fart box. The planet that... So Pandora's a moon, which is kind of an interesting choice. In, in sci-fi, at least new sci-fi, they never seem to go straight for like a new planet. It's always like a moon or something. It's like an interstellar. It's a galaxy that orbits a black hole, and that's sort of the weird novel thing. Mm-hmm. And here it's a, a moon that orbits, a, I think the planet's called Proteus, which mm-hmm. was a god that was like shapeshifter god. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, this is the scene Sigourney Weaver is explaining that the planet is a brain, therefore it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whose brain? You know? Uh, and, and again, to, to what end? Like, what is she... What is her motivation? And how does she not see her complicity in this uh, larger operation? It seems like the science of the film is set up in such a way to suggest that once you... Like, the ultimate goal is to understand something and how it works. And once you do that, that will solve all the other problems. So she tells him, like, we understand it, here's how it works. And he's like... Who gives a shit? <laughs> like right. it doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, if it's not making money, it's not. Yeah, it's not any sort of 
If it isn't proactive make, science. If it ain't making dollars, then it ain't making sense. Uh, if you ain't talking about money, don't be talking to me. I forget what I forget what song that is, but it's, there's a line in, in some rap song that was a. Uh, if you ain't talking about money, you might as well be speaking Chinese. I forget. I forget what it is. I was quoting uh, the Pedro the Lion song, "Penetration." <laughs> if uh, if it isn't making dollars, it isn't making sense. Uh, I can't remember the rest of it. If it isn't penetration, it isn't worth the kiss. Strangely, um, strangely apt for this movie. You think this movie's based on that song? Yeah, definitely. James Cameron heard that song. And James was like, Cameron's a big uh, David Bazan fan, <laughs> for sure. He loves the ocean and David Bazan. <laughs> there, he does. James Cameron will find a way to have action sequences filmed in high tech laboratories. All his movies are just like uh, that's where that's where the shit goes down. There's always some sort of act, action sequence in a futuristic ship or laboratory, you know. And I just uh, I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> and that that final action sequence is pretty. Uh... It has all the home. That's the thing. It's like Avatar does hit all of the sort of old, massive, classic movie tropes where there's a love story and it's kind of a forbidden love and there's a hero that has to overcome the odds. There's like a clearly evil force working. Um, and then even in the, the battle at the end, it has all those tropes of like, there's a, you know, a strong opening and it looks like the Navi are going to win it really quickly and then you know the humans fight back and there's like a slow motion thing where you see like the horse on fire like galloping yeah. <laughs> it's very like saving private ryan kind of and everything yeah. sort of slows yeah, down that sort of slow back. surreal it reminded me very much as i um just in general this movie i think it came out around the same time it reminded me of apocalypto in some ways mm. just in the kind of uh Indigenous representations of like indigenous sort of you know kind of tropey type things, uh, but Apocalypto is another movie where the action sequences action sequences are pretty badass. Uh, well, it's, that's Mel Gibson, right? Yeah. And, we, and weirdly enough, we were talking about the Patriot earlier. Yeah. And that's you know that's a pretty strong action movie. Well, historically and, speaking, maybe and, not. And Mel Gibson, you know, obviously seriously flawed. Everything, everything perspective. I think, but as, as a as a director, I I kind of think ultimately his legacy would be as a director more than an actor, because he's made he's directed I guess four films now: Braveheart, Passion, Passion of Christ, Christ, Apocalypto, and uh, that Hacksaw Ridge, which I haven't seen yet. But um, yeah, he he makes a an epic every eight years or something, and always very very bloody always very bloody but uh, I can't speak to uh, Hacksaw Ridge like I said I haven't seen it but uh, the first three even The Passion of the Christ very controversial uh, 
you know, but an extremely well-made film and well-researched film uh, in terms of language and, you know, authentic things like that. And of course, Jesus was white. Uh, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Most important detail. He nailed it. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, an Apocalypto especially is a very sort of uh, historically accurate kind of well-researched film. About a time a time frame and a, a sort of people that just films aren't made about unless you count like The Emperor's New Groove. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's cool that it's um, you know still kind of about I mean everything any movie you see is kind of about contempt- the contemporary world. But he's it's a depiction of kind of decadence and the the decaying impact of, of decadence on society um, do I need to point out the hypocrisy you know there uh, of Mel Gibson making that film but uh, yeah and, and something we haven't really talked about with Avatar is the aforementioned the oft aforementioned hypocrisy of this you know clearly sort of anti-corporate um, story of you know the triumph of indigenous peoples being marketed through uh, fucking Walmart and McDonald's and whatever else it was marketed through. It was a an event when this movie came out, and it was just sort of old school, you know, product tie-in, product placement everywhere. What do you do with that? Yeah, I mean, it all you know, it just had these sort of oppositional ideological stances that it takes but obviously that didn't really have any kind of effect on on the culture at large right nobody saw Avatar and was like yeah fuck the military like (laughs) that didn't happen um and when you like I imagine that there were probably a lot of like far right wing jerk offs who would like make a long rambling YouTube video about how Avatar is left wing propaganda this and Wally are the worst (laughs) Yeah. yeah but for the most part People just didn't, you know, like the the line from Children of Men, just don't think about it. (laughs) And honestly, the emphasis, both, you know, actually and in the marketing of this movie, the emphasis on the cutting edge technology kind of obscures any political message in this movie. People saw this because they heard it was really fucking cool looking. And it is. Yeah. Therefore... That's it. Again, we keep referring to this, you know, the old film of the train coming out of the, the illusion of the train coming out of the uh, screen. That's, I mean, this is just 21st century version of that spectacle. And here you have the scene of the the Navi shooting their bows and arrows at the, the giant ship, which is a pretty good encapsulation of how the the military side of this views them right calls them like blue monkeys and mm-hmm. savages and all that sort of stuff same kind of rhetoric you would get around Native Americans <laughs> I guess I know <laughs> well yeah same kind of rhetoric you get from from a Gibson <laughs> uh, and he is such a great bad guy yeah yeah I saw like his Steven picture on the internet he looks just like a happy go lucky kind of weird kind of a uh, almost hippie looking guy 
Yeah. But he, yeah, he plays the sort of G.I. Joe bad guy pretty well. Yeah, and even at the end when he's, uh, the Navi have won the battle and he's in his, his like mech fighting Jake in his avatar. Um, which is a good sort of parallel. Like, he's in his robot, Jake's in the Avatar. Right, um, right. And, but he... There's, like, multiple levels to his... To the military guy, which is... Uh, it's like he's in his ship. In the in the space... Or the aircraft, whatever it is. And then Jake, like, blows it up. And he escapes in the nick of time in his big sort of robot Avatar. And then um, the shield from that robot avatar gets blown off, and then it's just like face to face. So it's like I don't know if we're if that's intentional. We're supposed to pay attention to like oh he's like shedding his layers and, and becomes actually vulnerable. One thing I did have a question about, just a sort of logical thing I noticed when the general dies. Uh, you know, he gets the arrows in his chest. He, the the robot he's in, the big avatar, you know, robot he's in falls. <laughs> it just seems like yeah. a design flaw. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. why? How he he's standing up in the in the thing. How could he possibly fall and, over? Yeah, how could he? You know, if if it's designed to mirror his movements, and he's standing up and sort of harnessed in, how could how could that possibly happen? Just well, it's less dramatic if he just like goes oh, and like <laughs> and the robot's just standing, the, the standing. <laughs> right. Um, it's less dramatic, but it would have made way more sense. Yeah, I will say that. So the ending is when you have Jake having his brain, his mind, I guess, transferred into the avatar permanently, sort of fully and permanently. Um, which is an interesting sort of thing about the debate of like where does the mind reside and, and all that sort of stuff. Right. Which is a you know Daniel Dennett for all of his work with the the new atheists that cohort of jackasses. Yeah, he he's done a lot of interesting stuff about the mind and the brain and how they're not quite the same, but they both went out of this place. <laughs> uh, to quote Brightus, but or Connor Ebers, and so. At the end, he's being transferred into this this Navi body, and it's sort of interesting because it goes back to what we've been talking about about how the planet is this sort of self-contained, quantifiable brain ecosystem thing, and I think because of that explanation, it makes what happens at the end more believable to someone who tends to be more sort of rationally minded or whatever. It's not. It's not magic, it's that the planet is like a supercomputer, therefore it can do this kind of stuff, even though to most people that might as well be magic, because I couldn't tell you how that would function. Right. Um, So it's sort of interesting to think about it in that sense of Jake is only able to be in this avatar through this sort of ridiculous level of technology that doesn't even begin to exist in our current time. Mm. Um, so that's why he has to be in the pod and all this sort of, it's kind of funny to think about him like doing all the stuff and fighting these battles in this body. Meanwhile, he's just laying in a pod like unconscious. Yeah. It's almost like, it's sort of like the matrix. Yes. Yeah. Which is in that, that Zizek article, he makes that sort of thing of a, that comparison of the, the, the films talk about this sort of comparison 
between reality and a kind of fantasy or a kind of virtual reality. And, and, and that's sort of, uh, I can't quite, no pun intended, flesh this out, this idea out of like the disdain for the body because it feels very pervasive throughout this movie. And, it, and in some way, it feels like it has to do with virtual reality and the turn that video games are taking towards virtual reality. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of, like, uh, uploading consciousness. And it just, it just feels like that is really part of the 21st century, or especially 2000. 19, 18, whatever, uh, the zeitgeist. Like, that's part of it. What was that Spielberg movie about? Hey, honey? No, uh, just a recent Spielberg movie. Oh, uh, Ready Player One. Ready Player which One. Which is based on a, a book. Right. That is just like, it, it's it's that sort of thing, and it's also sort of a, a blind nostalgia grab. Right. In, anyway, it just, it just makes me think how, first of all, how popular video games are and how adventure based they are and sort of motion based and action based they are and how that's such a sad kind of thing to think about when you realize that which what what a human body is actually doing when it plays video games you know it's just kind of this it's it's like sensory in the worst way possible it's like sensory. It's like the illusion of sensory. Yeah, uh, you're just staring at a screen, kind of fantasizing about moving your body. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, which is which is what in the world of Avatar, Jake is kind of doing. Uh, and so, in a way, it kind of ratifies that. And uh, I haven't seen this movie, but I know I've seen you know read a little bit about it. The new the newest uh, Jumanji yeah. is kind of Avatar-based. You yeah, know? yeah, because, you know, the original Jumanji is just like the game comes into reality, but right. in this one they go into the game and they become these sort of, uh, you know, one of them becomes The Rock and one of them becomes Jack Black or whatever. It, it makes me think of uh, a movie that we haven't done but that we, we're both big fans of, Her, uh, and how in Her... We've, talk, we've talked about doing that. Yeah, and and I don't know if we brought this up before or not, but one of my favorite scenes, and it's kind of a throwaway in the movie, but it's something that stuck with me, is when the uh, the OS recreates Alan Watts, the philosopher from from his yeah, writing. I think it's, I think it's Brian Cox is yeah. the voice that portrays it. Yeah, and and they recreate this philosopher from his writings and interviews and all this collected content. And yeah, Alan Watts is maybe like. Zizek before Zizek in, in terms of his YouTube presence. Yeah. It's just like there are thousands of audio files. And so it's it's an interesting thing of like that's not Alan Watts, right? Like Alan Watts died, died and is buried and all that, but it has all of the thoughts he ever expressed outwardly available right there. Um, so in a way, it's sort of like a more condensed purely intellectual version of Alan Watts without all the id and all, all that stuff. He's like brand name Alan Watts as opposed to like the mortal yeah personal no no, no flaws anymore it's just pure you know philosophy pure mind. Yeah. Um it's interesting to think about 
Didn't think we were going to go in that direction. No, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> I, honestly, I didn't think about that at all. But I think that's, I think that's worth talking about and worth thinking about. With, I mean, at, just as as time progresses, you hear more and more about this idea of like uploading consciousness, which yeah. to me, just full disclosure, sounds fucking crazy. Uh, it does, but and, a lot of people find it comforting. Of you know, if you could, you know, be free of your body but still exist. Sort of an inherent fear of death. It, yeah, it makes me. It reminds me of a line in uh, True Detective when in season one, True Detective, when they go to this old woman's house and she starts, you know, goes in this trance and starts rambling about this uh, Carcosa, I think it is, yeah. and she says, "Death is not the end." And then, you know, she gets all worked up and they leave, and McConaughey says, "I sure hope that old lady was wrong." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hope, you know, I sure hope death is not the end. Or I hope death is the end, is what he's saying. Because uh, you can only stand so much of it. So, yeah, I don't really understand the... What was that? It was like a Johnny Depp movie, Transcendence, I think it was called. That was yeah, about yeah, that. yeah. I didn't see. weird, like, uh, upload your consciousness movies. But I will say that in, uh, sort of going back to what we were talking about before, interesting thing about Avatar is that the kind of change that we're talking about of putting your consciousness into a different physical form is presented at least from the human angle by by Porridge as being sort of Jake being a race traitor and he even says at the end of like how does it feel to go against your race yeah. that sort of thing um, and it, it sort of comes from this, the fact that the military industrial complex of the film is painted as being inherently brutal and racist and destructive and you know without conscious and that, that sort of stuff but it's interesting to see it painted in that way of he's not turning his back on I guess like humanity in general or anything like that but it's presented at least by courage of race human as a race of people right. specifically it seems in the film is like white people although there are non-white humans on Pandora mm-hmm. um it's sort of presented in that kind of way of like to identify with the military that is theirs to identify with this kind of like white humanity, uh, white destructive, exploitative humanity, which again is why somebody. And, and you can just sort of see like in the comparison we keep making to the new world, the film, you can just sort of see if, you know, if that actually did happen, the Europeans, Definitely defining in that movie, Colin Farrell's character uh, defining what he does, his defection as race, racial, you know, a sort of race abandonment, uh, especially in the 15 or 1600s, whenever that story takes place. Yeah, and that, that's a big thing with like Indian captivity narratives, like you'll get the occasional one where someone's kidnapped by Native Americans and then just stays and <laughs> just is like this is better I don't want to go back right. um, you know that's a, that's another thing that happens in uh, and, and Terrence Malick is accused of you know, sort of the noble savage trope or whatever but uh, in his The Thin Red Line which is a fantastic movie I think uh, Jim, another Jim Caviezel reference Jim Caviezel uh, somehow he had another soldier gets stranded in on some island and the, they sort of learn the ways from the natives there 
and that sort of colors the rest his perspective the rest of his life and they're they're he and the other soldier are like hiding from the American military ships that come to rescue them yeah <laughs> um, yeah so that's weirdly kind of a similar similar trope in in Thin Red Line and New World and Avatar so I don't I, I can't really think of anything else I wanted to to touch on no we're just watching a basically naked Sigourney Weaver uh try to have her consciousness switch from her human body to her Navi body and failing epically. <laughs> Loser. See, that's that's Avatar, a film that I was not looking forward to because it's damn near three hours long, but yeah. was more entertaining than I thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, like I said, the, it has the right bad guys. Yeah. It, and the right good guys. And the right good guys, and it, and it, and it, uh, unfortunately, the people that made it are the bad guys. <laughs> by by the film's own logic. Are we the <laughs> um, so, next week we're going to be uh, hard shifting gears, talking about a film that was not didn't make three million dollars or three billion dollars. Almost. Sorry. Oh, it's just close. It's a shade under. Uh, we're talking about I Heart Huckabees. From 2004, directed by David O. Russell, who's probably better known for The Fighter and American Hustle. So long to play book. Um, but I Heart Huckabee is a film with a, a kind of explicit ecological angle to it. Again, we keep we keep coming up with this sort of stark distinction between films that sort of depict the real world and uh, individuals kind of wrestling with the knowledge of like climate change. And then, like, films that are, like, super-duper fictional and create these <laughs> fictional worlds to sort of implicitly have some sort of commentary on environmental issues. Yeah. And I Heart Huckabees is definitely the first time yeah. to do that movie. A lot of uh, weird and weirdly deep philosophical stuff in the movie with Jason Schwartzman and, and Marky Mark and... Who else is in that? Isabella Huppert. Isabella Huppert. Uh, Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin. Uh, yeah. What's his name? Dustin Hoffman. Oh yeah, I forgot Dustin Hoffman. The Existential Detectives. I'm looking forward to rewatching this. I saw yeah. it in high school, and I like. I'm sure I didn't get all of it, but I I knew it was cool. You know. Yeah. And the sort of quote unquote villain is a is a nihilist, and that's why she's <laughs> a French French existentialist nihilist. Yeah. Um. So yeah, looking forward to seeing it. I haven't seen it in a long time, yeah. so it'll be it'll be good to see that. Um, you rock, rock. You rock, rock. Uh, so follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Available on the episode will be available on SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff. And uh, 